I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're looking at verses 42 through 47, and then we're going to go back one chapter and look at verses 12 through 14. But as you know, we've been making our way through this four-part series on the commitment of the early church to the things that they devoted themselves to, the the apostles teaching, the uh, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And so we're to our last uh, of the four parts here. And maybe some of you are thinking, a sermon on prayer, get ready to feel conviction. Uh, This is one of the easiest topics to talk about where we will feel guilty at the end. Scottish preacher Alexander White once said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Prayer is the first step in evangelism and missions. And we talk about uh, the opportunity to go and evangelize. And maybe some of you aren't able to join uh, Matt in in that endeavor, going to Planned Parenthood or going and sharing your faith with uh, those um, wherever they end up going, whether it's to the mall or to... Uh, swap meet or somewhere else that that they decide. Uh, Not everyone is able to do that or um, has the opportunity, but prayer is something you should be engaging in, especially during those times if you're uh, mindful about what they're going through, to to ask the Lord to support them, to give them words to say. Um, Revivals are birthed in prayer. a commitment to prayer becomes a a foundation for growth not only numerically but but in maturity and depth as a as a people as a community and so as we consider how how this related to the verses right we'll be reading um you know the the verses in 242 through 46 and also the verses in 1 12 through 14 and the point there is we're going to see something of the context that this community was gathered in um, they were gathering at a at a time of great joy and anticipation but also some tremendous tension and and trial and so i think one of the ways that this will 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 help us is it gives us some components to have in mind as we are praying, right? The, the way in which we can pray with, with complete confidence that God is in control and is sovereign, even when we're going through difficult and challenging situations. Thomas Brooks says this. This is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. Thomas Brooks warns, he says, believer, closet prayer will be found to be but a lifeless, comfortless thing if you do not enjoy communion with God in it. There should be the very soul of, that should be the very soul of all your closet duties. Therefore, press after it as for life. When you go into your closet, banish everything that can hinder your enjoyment of Christ. How often does joy characterize your prayer life you know, we think about it as a duty as a responsibility oh i gotta remember to pray for so and so and we lift them up and, and we kind of move on but thomas brooks would would warn you and caution you that it will be lifeless and comfortless if joy and communing with god is not central 
to your prayer life. So the disciples have been told to, to wait for the promise of the, the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Christ commissioned them, and then he ascended in 6 through 11. And then in 12 through 26, there's this replacing of Judas that takes place. And so we're going to look at three verses that kind of lead up to that. But that passage from 12 through 26 apparently takes about 10 days. Um, we know that Pentecost occurred during the, the Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days after Passover. And we know that Jesus spent 40 days making various appearances to his disciples before his ascension. And so 50 days from Passover, when the crucifixion occurred, until the Feast of Weeks, when Pentecost occurs, you have 40 days between resurrection and ascension. So you have or there's 50 days minus 40, and so 10 days where the disciples are spent in waiting. What are they doing while they're waiting? And we know that Jesus has given them a promise to send the Holy Spirit, and he tells them to wait. They're not, they're not to do anything yet. They're not to go anywhere. They don't know exactly how long they're supposed to wait, but they're to wait, and so they begin gathering and the one thing they do is the most powerful thing they can do. They gather to pray. So Jesus has gone. What should they focus on now? All right, they, there's a, a recognized pattern in Luke's narrative where this inward focus is followed by an outward focus. And so as they're gathering together to pray, that is eventually followed by Pentecost, where there's this great gathering together of, of a large crowd and 3,000 are added to this number of 120. So this inward focus becomes a great outpouring of the gospel proclamation into the surrounding regions. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we do have um, your promise to be with us in prayer. Lord, that we aren't praying alone, uh, that your spirit is interceding for us. There are certainly seasons in our lives where we know we should be praying, but we don't even know how to pray. We don't know what, what words to say. And so we took, look to your psalm, psalms for, for help and encouragement to help us to, to, to give words of praise to you, to acknowledge your attributes, to recognize your goodness to us and your greatness. Lord, we, we, we also come recognizing our weaknesses, and so we confess our sin to you, and we, we take the time to acknowledge our need and our dependence upon you, and to remind ourselves of, of the promises you've given to assure us that you pardon us of our sins, that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, and to be reminded as well that you've clothed us in the righteousness of Christ so that we can come as adopted children children to a father, Lord, knowing that you hear us in our prayers and that you long and love to give good gifts to your children. Lord, we have all of these blessings that are promised to us in, in prayer. And so we bring those to you and we can also be honest with you and, and acknowledge the ways in which our heart has been cold. Maybe our mind has been distant. Maybe we've been focused on other things. Lord, help us to be reminded of the privilege of prayer, the privilege of communing with you, that we would enjoy it. 
Lord, may that be our experience even now as we commune with you in your word and as we have a prayerful posture listening intently, Lord. We recognize that that's not something we can do easily anymore. We're so prone to distraction, so many different things on our minds and opportunities to distract our mind with. And so, Lord, we ask for your spirit to arrest our hearts and our minds. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts that we would respond in obedience to your word. And Lord, stir up our affections once again. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now turn with me back to chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. This is immediately following Jesus' ascension and his commission to them. as well as the angel's reminder to them. In verse 11, actually, we'll read from there. He says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline, if you are following along, there is living with joy, verse 12. And I just want us to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples as, as they have just witnessed their Savior carried up into heaven. You know, they're traveling back to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is a Sabbath day's journey, it says. Now, that might sound a bit confusing. If you know anything about the region, you know that the Mount of Olives is less than a mile away from Jerusalem. And so you think a Sabbath day's journey? I mean, man, that like, did take, they, they must have been going really slow. They took them all day to get there. Uh, no, the, the point of a Sabbath day's journey is that it's the distance that would have been common kind of language among um among people that Jews were legally permitted to travel uh, a certain distance without violating the contemporary understandings of the fourth commandment. And so they had restrictions on how far they could travel. And a Sabbath day's journey was roughly 
somewhere around a mile or less than a little less than a mile. And so that's the, the language he's, uh, that Luke is employing here. He's saying about that journey, about that distance is how far they had to return to Jerusalem from where they stood at, um, at the ascension. That doesn't mean that the ascension took place on the Sabbath. Um, it was just a, a, a common use to, to refer to a Sabbath day's journey as, as that distance that they traveled. Um, now, what was on their minds as they left that place? What would they have been thinking about? I mean, obviously, um, the miraculous sight that they just saw is, is on their minds, but also the words that were commended to them, the commission that they had been given, uh, the reminder and the warning, really, from the, the angels to, to stop just pondering up into the clouds, but to take that with them as, as a confident promise that he'll return one day in the same way that he just ascended. And so Acts 1.8 is the commission that Jesus Christ gives to them. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, no doubt, the picture of Jesus ascending into heaven, taken up in a cloud, would have stuck with them for the rest of their lives. These were ordinary men. They were doing ordinary things prior to being called by Jesus. They've been with him now for three years, and they've witnessed extraordinary things through those three years. And maybe one of the most miraculous for some of them, those that might have been around the, during the Transfiguration were also amazed uh, at that point, but that was only the, the few in the inner circle. This is the whole group of them now witnessing him carried up into glory. And so these ordinary men have that extraordinary privilege and the weight of responsibility now that rests upon them. It's doesn't, it doesn't even have time to settle, right, as they're returning back, thinking about this commission. You will be my witnesses. These men were previously unknown, and yet now they have become the foundation of the New Testament church. As they walk to Jerusalem, surely their, their thoughts are racing from one thing to the next. Did scenes pass through their minds, maybe, of the ministry that they'd experienced in those very locations? The, the, last, earthly, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry at the Mount of Olives, maybe they recall the teaching of Jesus there, the Olivet Discourse, where he explains some of the things that we read about in Zechariah 14 the description of the end times, of, the thing, of his return, the close of the age, the events that surround that return. More than likely, they, they understood Zechariah 14, 4 to be speaking of the same place that Christ would return, this, this mount where he would come. And so it doesn't seem like they are, are scared or confused anymore. Think about at the crucifixion, what happened? They all fled and scattered now they're, they're trusting and they're confident and they're, they're going to wait. And so, so as they're, they're returning, they're, they're slow. Maybe they're not even talking to one another. They're just meditating and thinking, lost in their own thoughts. Maybe they're sharing memories. It doesn't say. So obviously nothing really outward to share about what, what they're going through, but certainly their minds are, are racing Maybe they paused to pass through Gethsemane 
or as they passed through Gethsemane and noted the spot where Jesus cried out in agony. If there's any other way, take this cup, let it pass. Maybe they're beginning to better understand the depths of, of Christ's agony as he prayed those very words that same night. You can imagine all of these things passing through their minds as they are soberly and quietly returning to the place that they are staying. On the one hand, they're reserved, but on the other hand, I think they were eager to get to the place where they might wait, just as Jesus had told them to do. In fact, Luke has already told us in his gospel that they're filled with joyful worship during this time. Luke 24, verses 50 through 53 says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So for the next 10 days as they're waiting, we know that they're continually going to the temple continually gathering together, surely as this gathering was just over 100 people, they didn't have room in, in, in most homes in that region. So they're gathering in the temple to praise God. We know also that they are gathered in a home here in, in 12 through 14. They return to Jerusalem from that mount called Olivet, a Sabbath day's journey, and they enter into an upper room, it says. So we'll, we'll, mention, we'll come back to that. But the apostles were, were eager to obey Jesus, which, again, is, is contrary to what they were oftentimes going through during his ministry and certainly at the crucifixion where they, where they abandoned him. They scattered during his arrest. Several of them even went back to their old jobs, ignoring what Jesus had said. And so they might be sober and quiet, but now it does seem like they are, are confident that they know what to do. And so they returned to Jerusalem to wait just as the Lord had instructed them. And I think this is worth pausing here and just recognizing the state of our, of our minds and our hearts when we intentionally go before the Lord, whether it be in corporate worship or prayer. We always take that time, and it's only a few moments to prepare our hearts for worship. Why do we do that? It's to take, to take stock of where our head is, <laughs> where our mind is. Do, are, we, are we preparing ourselves for this event, this covenant community that we gather together with to sit under the preaching of God's word? We want to make sure that our frame of mind is, is right. And so when was the last time you, you reflected upon your walk with Christ? We can imagine the apostles doing that at this point as they're coming back, reminding themselves of the things they'd experienced with Jesus during his ministry. It's easy to think about what they would have experienced, what, what would have been on their minds, but do you oftentimes reflect upon your own heart? How are you growing in grace? How have you grown since your conversion? The vision and mission of the church is to fulfill the, the great commission by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And that means that everyone is involved in the work. 
And so how are you contributing to that work? How has the Lord equipped you personally to be involved? How has he blessed you that you might be a blessing to others? I think the first commitment we each need to make is to be devoted to joyful prayer. And there's a great value in reflecting upon the mercy and grace of God that's been shown to us in our salvation. And this, this strengthens our prayer life and creates a joyful anticipation for extended times of prayer. And maybe you've already done that this morning, but if not, take some time today, even now, to recount the ways that God has mercifully brought you to himself. The ways he's redeemed you, what he's rescued you out of, so that you might be reminded of those things and stirred up to, with gratitude. If you've been justified by faith, don't neglect to reflect upon and exult in the joy of your salvation. And so the apostles, they returned with joy and then they waited with unity. We see this in verse 13 of chapter 1. And it says, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it lists all of their names. And verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Some think that this upper room was the same place where they shared their last meal with Jesus. It says the upper room. And so some would say that it's designating it as a separate, like a, that special designated upper room. We can't be certain, and, and I, I, I don't think it certainly in, in gives us that indication from the text. Luke could have made it clear um, by telling us that. But we know it was some second floor somewhere in, in, in a fairly large home. Um, we learn from, these, from, from verse 15 that there were approximately 120 people within the company. And, of course, the, the whole number is not staying there in this same location overnight, but they were in the habit of gathering together. They're in the habit of gathering regularly, praising God in the temple and gathering in homes. And since the city was destroyed in AD 70, it's difficult to know where this home might have been located. Very few homes in Jerusalem would have been capable of accommodating such a large number, even homes in the, in the upper city, the more... Uh, you know, the, the wealthier part of town. Um, but it's not unrealistic considering this full number might, might not have been present at each gathering. But at the same time, it's possible to, to cram a lot of bodies if you're standing, right? Or if you're, if you're making room for everyone. And if you've ever gone to a third world country for missions trips, you know that you can cram a lot of bodies into a small space in these kinds of settings. And if you're anxious and excited to be there, you're not so worried about comfort, the, the comfort of the location that you're gathered in. So we could say much about these 11 apostles. These are the same men who accompanied Jesus during his earthly ministry that we've been thinking about what they would have had on their minds. Uh, they witnessed his resurrection. They were just commissioned by him, and, and they will all be present on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the truth. But notice who heads this list. The first name on that list is Peter. And it indicates something about his leadership of this group. Right? He was part of Jesus' inner circle with James and John. He often spoke for the whole group of the disciples. Um, during you know, during Jesus' ministry, you see Peter responding on behalf of the apostles. 
Um, and then he's recognized as the leader. So despite the fact that he is the one who denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest, Peter is the one chosen to have the primary preaching role throughout the first 12 chapters of Acts. You'll see Stephen as well, but it's, it's primarily Peter who's the one speaking up and proclaiming boldly before large crowds. Again, the same one who denied knowing Christ because he was afraid of one person finding out is now proclaiming the truth boldly before large audiences. So Peter is the one chosen to, to lead that group and, and then also notice who's absent from that list. And Judas was not with them and they'll be replacing Judas Iscariot in verses 15 through uh, the end of the, of the chapter. But get a picture of what these disciples had been through together these past three years. They stayed together in this upper room area where they're, they're all staying together because they're strengthened by one another's presence. And they, they could have gone off and figured out what they were going to do, but instead at this point they're, they're all staying together and it testifies of the importance of that regular fellowship with like-minded believers the need we have for one another i love how james boyce comments on this passage he says people need people this need is part of what it means to be a human being one of the worst things that can happen to a person is to be utterly isolated from other people and the converse of this is that if we are to grow intellectually socially and spiritually we need others to do so and so the church has already been a place for the or has always been a place for the stranger who is yearning for fellowship maybe maybe you've seen this on the front of the bulletin and it's been a while since you took the time to read it but look at that phrase right in the middle of our um of the words there on the cover to all who are spiritually weary and seek rest to all who mourn and long for comfort to all who struggle and desire hope to all who sin and need a savior to all who are strangers and yearn for fellowship to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever whoever will come this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the risen lord jesus christ it's a reminder right of showing hospitality to the stranger, of welcoming them in, and of having the kind of fellowship that a stranger would yearn to be a part of. That means that there's a warm, a warm gathering. Right? And so I pray that we would have many visitors enter through these doors for years to come, and as they do, that none of them would leave as strangers because we're committed to making them feel welcome and at home here. And so after returning with joy and then waiting with unity, we find that they prayed with confidence. Between the Ascension and Pentecost, the disciples were not passive and inactive. We oftentimes think of waiting as maybe the, the worst kind of torture. Right? You just have to do nothing. Well, they didn't do nothing. They sought the Lord in prayer with a single purpose. And we, we saw that already in Luke chapter 24, verse 53. They were continually in the temple praising God. Well, if they were continually in the temple praising God and also continually in prayer or devoted to prayer, 
well, is there a contradiction here? Now, the phrase doesn't mean that they never left the temple, they never left the upper room, but that they were habitually gathering together in these places. They devoted themselves to continual praise and continual prayer. It means that was the posture of their heart, even as they're interacting with people on the street. The combination of devoted and prayer occurs three times in Acts. We saw it in verse 14 of chapter 1. We see it in 2.42, and then you see it again in chapter 6, verse 4. This was a community characterized by prayer. We also see this phrase, with one purpose. It occurs ten times in Acts. And so this was a community that was united. In fact, outside of Acts, that phrase, with one accord only, or with one purpose, only occurs one time in the New Testament. You know, the, the focus is, is different in, in those, those epistles and texts, but it's interesting that you have a very clear indication that this community, this earthly new covenant community, was united. And they had one purpose, and they were characterized by a particular request. All right, certainly they would have spent time praising God, as we've said, and they would have spent time confessing their sin, but they almost certainly focused on petitioning the Lord to send the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised. John Calvin comments regarding this passage that we have two, essential, two essentials for true prayer, namely that they persevered and were of one mind. So they continued to do it, and they were united as they did it. Another author notes that praying together often builds or maintains unity. You've probably heard that phrase, the family that prays together stays together. There's evidence of that in scripture. And so we've already noted that the importance of unity, but now we see this specific need to be unified in our prayers. The unity these disciples experienced went beyond fellowship to praying with a single purpose in mind. John Stott writes, the the togetherness implied seems to go beyond mere assembly and activity to agreement about what they were praying for. That means they're not just all praying separate things privately or quietly, but they're praying together and agreeing with one another. We know that the apostles were not alone. They were, it says at the end of verse 14, uh, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, none of the additional disciples are surprising except the addition of his brothers because John specifically points out in chapter 7, verse 1 through 9 in his gospel that these brothers did not believe during Jesus' ministry. And so now we see that they have, at least some of them, have gathered together with the community of disciples trusting and praying. And so at some point during his resurrection appearances, at least some of them have become convinced. Now Jesus' ascension acknowledged his authority. His present reign is redemptive, but it's also intercessory. He is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And as the apostles continually devoted themselves to prayer, their Savior was continually interceding on their behalf. And so do you realize that even when you're the only one in the room, even when you're in your closet praying, 
that you're not praying alone. That's one of the reasons why prayer is such a privilege is because we pray with our Lord. And we're always, he is always ready to pray with and for us, interceding on our behalf. We'll be singing a song in response here before the throne of God above. And that first line says before the throne or the first verse says before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Is that on your minds as, as you're going to the Lord in prayer? Recognizing the Savior that you have who stands in your place. Because we have such a great high priest, we bring our burdens and our requests to the throne of God with perseverance and confidence, knowing that he hears us and is ready and able to answer us. And so joy, unity, and prayer should characterize our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice with uncontainable joy because amazing grace has reached down and saved a wretch like you and me. We dwell in unity and welcome the stranger because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And we pray with confidence because we know that our ascended Lord is interceding on our behalf even now. And so let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is easy to feel convicted about the topic of prayer and many of us recognize our our weakness there it's an area where we want to grow where we want to mature may we consider these disciples and their example and the the radical transformation that takes place in their lives as they witness the ascension of their savior who performed many miracles among them, now on their own, recognizing that they are going to be witnesses of that gospel message. They become the pillars and the foundation of this covenant community. And Lord, one of the first things they do is they devote themselves to joyful communion with you. It's so easy to get wrapped up in all of the things that have to be done and all of the projects that we have to do and the, just the, the context that we live in, the challenges of our world. We read through an, an, a news story and it frustrates us. Lord, all of these things distract us from that joyful communion that you've called us to. Lord, give us a posture that's like these disciples, that we would be those who are continually praising you and continually coming before you in prayer, bringing our petitions to you, casting our burdens and our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. Recognizing, Lord, that you are at work in and through our circumstances 
to bring us all the way home. Lord, we can be confident. And Lord, we recognize that this community, this gathered gathering of the saints is a means of grace. It's a gift from you. And it's also a way in which you equip us and you begin to to change our affections for this world to the things that are unseen, to the things that are eternal and future, to that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Lord, that glorious inheritance that awaits where, where we will be united with saints across the ages, across the continent, worshiping you face to face. Lord, may that image be on our minds and our hearts as we come before you and be filled with joy as we reflect upon with gratitude all that you've done for us and what you've invited us to participate in. Lord, as we respond to this message May you be glorified as our hearts are turned toward you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.